Owens from Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the podcast for busy people who don't have as much time as they would like to read. I have conversations with writers of all types to help you save time. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Babo Botanicals, B-A-B-O Botanicals, organic solutions for sun, skin, and hair for the whole family. Rebecca Mackay is the author of three novels, The Borrowers, The Hundred Year House, I'm sorry, The Borrower, The Hundred Year House, and her most recent book, The Great Believers, which just came out on June 19th. She also wrote a collection of short stories called Music for Wartime. A graduate of Washington and Lee with an MA in English from Middlebury, uh, Rebecca was a Montessori elementary school teacher before publishing her first book. She has since taught at Northwestern, the MFA program at Sierra Nevada, and at multiple workshops and writers' conferences. She currently lives in Chicago and Vermont with her husband and two daughters. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so welcome, Rebecca. Um, Thank you. So you've written these three novels and a short story collection that won the 2017 Pushcart Prize and have basically gotten like the best reviews ever from The New Yorker to Oh, The Oprah Magazine and even The People Magazine I just picked up to read on my flight from L.A. last week. Your books are just incredibly, incredibly praised and lauded by critics. So I was just wondering, what's your secret and how does this how does this make you feel? Um, I'm, well, I don't, I don't really have a secret, so I'm not sure how to answer that, but, um, no, I feel, it feels great, and I think that, um, this book is being, um, read a bit more widely right off the bat than my previous ones, which is very exciting. Um, it's, you know, I was already, you know, incredibly grateful and thrilled for the reception of my previous books, but this one feels a little different, and, um, and I'm just, you know, I'm really happy and excited. It's, it's been less than a week, but good things are happening. That's awesome. Um, speaking of reviews, by the way, I saw that um, author Priscilla Gilman, who wrote The Anti-Romantic Child, actually blurbed your short story collection. And she was also a recent guest on this podcast. So she just wanted me to tell you that she's thrilled for you and can't wait to read your latest novel. So, Ah, <laughs> uh, cool, cool. Um, so you write with such insight and authority about the gay population. In this latest novel, The Great Believers, you not only depict a male relationship with tremendous beauty and insight, but you also describe Chicago 1980s gay culture in, in great detail, from bathhouses and parks to certain bars and par- parties. I was pretty surprised when I realized you were actually married to a man <laughs> um, as a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so what captured your interest about this particular population and how do you write about gay men so well as such an insider? Um, yeah, so you know, it's funny, what was actually trickier for me than writing about gay men was simply writing about a different time. Um, I was alive in the 80s, but I was a kid. Um, and that shift in, um, you know, just trying to remember exactly when certain things had been invented, um, you know, things like that were actually harder for me than, than just, you know, writing those characters. Um, I do have, I have, a, a, you know, of course, being really active in the art scene in Chicago, um, I do have a you know huge number of, of LGBTQ friends, um, and feel very comfortable in that community, and, and you know love those people, love writing about them. Um, I do always have some trepidation writing as an outsider, and you know I was really careful and really concerned as I wrote this book that um, you know it, I could get things wrong first of all, and that I could be seen as 
you know, an act of appropriation in some way, telling a story that I didn't have the right to tell. Um, but um, we can talk more about those things if you want to. But you know, I've managed to answer those questions for myself to you know, to an extent that satisfies me. Um, but, you know, I think that, honestly, I'll say this, it's easier for me to write gay men than it is to write straight men. Um, I never know. My straight men are always, like, scratching their crotches. I'm like, I don't know what to do with them. Gay men, it's like, no, I got this. I got this. I also think that gay men write women really well. Um, you know, if you, like, in novels, but something like, you know, Sex in the City, you know, Darren Starr, I think that there's... Um, there's certainly vast differences, um, especially societal differences, but there's a, there's a ton in common. And I, um, I, I, as much as I was worried about getting things wrong historically and, you know, tonally anything like that and made sure that people read it for accuracy and for, you know, whether it rang true, um, the, the gay characters in the book came pretty easily to me. Oh, that's great. You definitely made them super real. I felt like I could, you know, spot Yale on the street after reading your book. <laughs> um, oh, that's cool. So, and I was actually going to ask you already about um, how, you know, many of your works have multiple storylines in different time periods, um, like not only in The Great Believers from, you know, going back and forth from 1985 to 2015, but also in The Hundred Year House, how you went from 1929 to 55 to 99. Um, so tell me a little more about that. Do you enjoy that process of bringing different periods of time to life for readers? Um, is it more a structural element that you think um, helps you tell your story, or is it just a coincidence that you do it often? Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt like it was great how you referenced such time-specific details, like listening to the acoustic version of Simon and Garfunkel's America and saying that, you know, they'd listen to it right after Reagan's re-election. Like, just all those details are so spot on. Yeah, you know, it's it's actually, um, the appeal for me isn't necessarily in those details, although they are fun. But what I think makes me um, play with time and write about multiple time periods is that's that's what kind of gives me writer goosebumps, the, the, um, the span of time and the dramatic irony that it makes possible, right? That, like, the, you know, dramatic irony... Um, for people who aren't up on their, you know, <laughs> middle school English or whatever the last time that was mentioned would be, like, when we know more than the characters. Right. And um, that can seem really heavy-handed sometimes in fiction where it's like, oh, you know, there's someone waiting around the corner and they don't know it yet. Um, but writing with a gap in time allows us to use that dramatic irony. You know, like, if we're going back and forth between the 80s and 2015, we end up knowing more about the 80s than the characters in the 80s now. Um, you know, we know what's around, the, you know, what's coming. And um, that becomes really interesting for me to play with structurally, and I just, I just find that um, exciting on, on a writer level, I think. And I think I like, I, you know, I also like reading stuff like that, which is always a good sign. Me too. <laughs> um, by the way, just for one detail that I just wanted to tell you how much I liked, when Charlie apologizes to Yale and the Great Believers after their fight, um, when they misinterpreted the events at their friend's memorial service, um, he writes the word sorry out in M&M's on their bed. Um, I thought that was so brilliant. I'm definitely going to have to steal that idea. And I was wondering, has someone done this for you? No, I wish, no, if someone could do that, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, no, no. Um, that was, um, that's funny, that was a later addition as I, I kind of was working on their relationship a little bit more, and I, 
um, I, I wanted to include that, and also it was a great excuse to include the tan M&Ms that yeah. don't exist anymore. Totally. I loved those. <laughs> I also grew, <laughs> grew up in the 80s, so I uh, remember sorting all those little colors out in uh, the light brown and the dark oh, brown. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So in The Borrower, you wrote about an accidental kidnapping, um, and I understand it took you about nine years to finish that book, and I was wondering if you could tell me more about that process, and what made you keep coming back to the book over and over again? Did you ever want to just throw it out and start again, or...? Yeah, I did do it at a lot of times, actually. I, I abandoned it temporarily a lot of times. You know, I think, I think there are many writers whose first books take them around eight to ten years um, for several reasons. I mean, because that's a little bit long, right? But, um, you know, partly because you're probably working a full-time job during that time without the promise of this book ever getting published. You don't know if you're deluding yourself. You don't know if it's just a weird hobby you have. So it's hard to prioritize it. And then also, you're still learning how to write a novel. Um, you know, you might have written a bunch of different short stories, and you could write them in a day or two, but, um, and then you get good at, you know, you get better at the short story because you've just done it a lot of times. But your first novel, you know, it is at least going to take you a few years and, and might, and you know, you, you, this is your first time out the gate and then you're trying to write something publishable. Um, it's funny because I think people get, people who aren't writers or aren't, aren't long-term writers, I think get um, a little confused by that whole NaNoWriMo thing, that National Novel Writing Month, which is a really cool idea. It's a great way for people to get some stuff down on the page. It's a great way to get teenagers involved in writing. But it takes a lot more than a month to write a novel. <laughs> so um, usually it takes, you know, about three or four years for something for a literary novel. Um, so, um, yeah, no, the, during those 10 years, I abandoned that project several times. I was working the whole time on short stories, which became my collection, and then meanwhile, I was starting my second novel. I was starting The Hundred Year House um, it, during one of the times when I'd abandoned The Borrower. Um, but um, I came back to it in the end, partly because I couldn't really let go of those characters. I found them really compelling. Um, and also because in the end, I realized, gosh, it was almost done. You know, I'd, I'd abandoned it and started this new book that then as soon as it started giving me trouble, I went back and looked at the borrower and was like, wait, what was I thinking? It's, it's going to be fine. Um, so um, that was a, a long winding road, but I think that's not unusual for a first novel. And aside from trial and error and just practice, how did you teach yourself how to write a novel? Or did you teach yourself? Did you take a class? Or how did, how did you do it? You know, um, I think that there was a lot of um, thinking and reading about plot and about structure that helped me. Um, I also really learned to outline, which I had not done with The Borrower. Um, for The Borrower, my only outline, I had like this one pie chart that I drew with like the percentages of time I'd spend on different, in different uh, parts of the book or something. But, um, you know, I wrote fairly detailed outlines um, for The Hundred Year House because it was backwards in time and it was a very intricate plot. I had a really elaborate outline. Um, for The Great Believers, it was quite a bit looser, but I still needed to have one. Um, and I needed to, you know, you need to do things like keep track of the dates that things happen. I was mapping this one in my Google calendar, um, <laughs> which is it, still in there. I like scrolled back a few years so that the dates of the days of the week would line up with 1985 and 1986. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then I had, you know, these events that I was putting in there, partly because, you know, since it is a novel about AIDS, um, I needed to make sure that, you know, um, two weeks passed before between someone taking the test and getting their results, um, uh, things like that. So, um, you know, that kind of thing with the first novel, um, you know, I didn't have a list of, you know, my characters and how old they were. I didn't have a timeline. Um, and you waste a lot of time then going back in and trying to find that information or messing it up and having to redo it. And also just not having a map for what scenes are going to go where. Um, that with the borrower, I just, you know, I was, I was kind of writing things out of order and then stitching them together like some kind of big patchwork quilt and then wondering why I didn't have any momentum to my story. And it's like, well, because you wrote it completely out of order and now you have to go back and do that again. So there are many things I have learned. And are these the types of things that you teach when you do? I know you do a lot of teaching now. I do, yeah. Um, I teach, I'm the artistic director at a place called Story Studio Chicago um, that basically it's a, you know, nonprofit writing center for people um, of all levels and writing in all genres. So from, you know, beginning writers through people who have, you know, advanced, you know, have an MFA degree in creative writing. Um, and specifically what I teach myself is um, a year-long novel workshop where we have people who um, are working on really incredible novels. It's, you know, application-based. And um, so often they come in and they're great writers. They often have a pretty great academic background in creative writing. They've maybe published short stories, but no one's taught them how to write a novel. And it's a totally different ballgame. And so I'm guiding them through a lot of that structure, the outlining, the practical considerations, as well as um, just, you know, how to write a great scene um, that is hard to find out there. A lot of our creative writing education is um, centered around short stories because that's what we have time to read and workshop and discuss. And so if you had any advice for fiction writers out there who don't have time to take your class or aren't in Chicago, what what, what free advice might you, um, might you give out? I would say that there are, yeah, there, there are lots of other writing centers in other major cities. Um, so it helps if you live in a city like Boston or Denver or Seattle. They have great writing centers. And a lot of these places also offer online classes. We do, too. Um, but um, I would also say that, um, you know, honestly, I'm going to sound super nerdy here, but I think one of the best things you can read about structure is Aristotle's Poetics. Um, that sounds so dry and it's not, it's actually kind of funny. Um, you know, it's thousands of years old and he was talking about Greek drama, but he was the first one to really sit there and kind of splice, dissect, you know, how does plot work? And he says in there even, you know, all these people who can write a great sentence but can't write a great plot, we still have the same issue. And um, he breaks it down in completely fascinating ways, some of which are outdated. They, they apply to Greek drama and don't apply to, you know, the modern novel, but many of which um, absolutely work. You know, these, he's, you know, the ancient Greeks were figuring out the parts of the triangle and all this <laughs> other stuff, too. He just figured out the parts of a plot. Well, uh, I'll go on Amazon and, and pick up some, some Aristotle then. <laughs> 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 Going to make it trending after this interview. Um, 
In your short story collection, um, Music for Wartime, you include a tale about a reality TV producer who manipulates two contestants into falling in love while um, while the producer's relationship falls apart herself. My my husband is a reality TV producer, so I was wondering if you could tell no me a little. Yeah, I want to know if you could tell me more about how that partic- how you came up with that story and and uh, how you come up with most of your story ideas. Um, I mean, I come up with them in entirely different ways, but I can tell you that one. Um, Yeah, I really, I love um, sort of process-based reality shows, um, like like Top Chef, Project Runway. um, And, um, you know, I just, honestly, I'm always recommending them to um, writing students just as, you know, it's, it's, kind of really cathartic to watch someone else cry about their failed art um, (laughs) and to see what they struggle with and um and to look at their the psychology of like do they let the criticism get to their head um you know etc and at the same time you know that they're you know actually scripted in many ways and um, I became really fascinated with the talking head interviews and this is way back I wrote this story in probably like two 2009 I'm, I'm ballparking there yeah. um, but uh, I became really fascinated by the talking head interviews and by the um, the question of who was on the other side of that interview and what were they asking to get them to say these things and sometimes it becomes really clear that they're saying whose work are you concerned about yeah. and then they'll answer with like I'm really concerned about you know, Annalisa's look, I don't think the judges are going to like it. Um, and they've, they've totally been coached into saying that. And I just became really interested in that other invisible silent person as a character. Um, it was hard because I couldn't research um, much about how reality TV is made because, as you know, if your husband works in this, they sign these non-disclosure agreements that are pretty intense. Um, So it was a lot of guesswork that then I later had, you know, verified in some ways by (laughs) when I did meet people who worked in reality TV. I was kind of assuming the worst and then writing it down and then, like... Um, I think in some ways I was right. In some ways I'm sure I was wrong, but that's a, you know, that's a pretty, it didn't have the, um, you know, commitment to realism there that I have with a book like The Great Believers where I'm writing about something so sensitive. Right. That makes sense. (laughs) Um, I know in a a previous interview you had, um, someone had asked you about how you came up with story ideas and you said you didn't know, but it was the same as, you know, how, how do you come up with what you dream about? It just is, right? Right. (laughs) So is that that how you feel? Yeah, it is. I have to say, like, I never, I never understood that question for the longest time because I was like, well, I just, what do you mean? Like, um, it just seems so natural to me that you constantly have story ideas wherever you go, and the way that one you take that idea and it grows into a story. Um, How old are your daughters, by the way? So seven and ten. Seven and ten. Um, And so, how do you how do you manage um, all the writing and being a mom too? Like, when do you write, and uh, how do you involve the girls at all? Um, if at all, with your writing. Oh gosh, I wouldn't want to involve them with my writing. That's a terrible mistake. But um, uh, no, they, you know they they go to school for seven hours a day. That's you know pretty full work day in there. Plus time to do other stuff. Um, you know, I I do a lot of traveling um, to promote my work, and they're great about it. They're you know really independent. 
Um, it's funny because I, I, I get this question all the time when I'm on the road. It's specifically, for some reason, it's it's from older women, and I think it's, I understand, it's, it's a generational difference, um, but they'll meet me at a signing or something and say, who's watching your children? <laughs> and I'll say, their father, their human father, <laughs> you know, um, like, of course, and then they'll go into, oh my gosh, you're so lucky that he, and I'm like, and, and, and I just kind of let it fly, but it's like, you no, know, luck had nothing to do with that. I never would have married someone who wasn't going to parent their children and let me have my career. Like, that, you know, um, he's pretty great, but I'm not going to give him superhuman credit. That's, like, you know, he's, um, it, it's like any other career that you need to balance and um, in the same way that, you know, because my thing is, you know, and I, I understand you're asking me that because of, you know, that's the nature of your podcast, but, um, you know, I know that as I'm out on the road and I get this question, it's like, you're not asking male authors this, you know, like that, the guy who, you know, read at this bookstore last week, you didn't ask him this, come on. Um, but, I, I um, like to ask- but no, make I like to ask, I ask male authors too, when they do their writing, how they balance family. I promise I'm not, uh, I wasn't trying to. No, you, you like, you I trust, you I trust. And that's, it's, you know, Jermaine to your podcast. But, um, But no, I was going to say to my kids, you know, this is, it's fun because this is the first book that they've really understood what's going on. Um, You know, my last book came out three years ago and they were just a little too young to really get it. Um, And now they, you know, they're, they're excited to, you know, see my book in magazines or to hear where I'm going and to, you know, know I'm going to be on radio or TV or whatever. They're pretty excited about it, which is great. And, you know, cause, and as, since they're girls too, it's like, you want to see them. I want them to see their mom having a, you know, important, fulfilling, exciting career. That's important. Totally. I am. Um, I have four kids myself and I feel like even though they go to school, I don't really have that much time somehow to get everything, everything done that I need to. So maybe my yeah. question is, uh, yeah. is selfish in, in, in nature. Cause, uh, most oh, totally, totally. <laughs> um, but if, so if your children, asked you if they should grow up and be writers too what would you tell them mm-hmm. um yeah I mean here's the thing like I I was really grateful that in my childhood home writing was seen as a legitimate career um my father is a poet his mother was a novelist um and you know my mother is an academic and it um I certainly was advised wisely to, um, you know, make sure that I had other employment opportunities. <laughs> um, you know, I majored in English rather than creative writing, which uh, that really didn't matter in the end. But, you know, I, as you said, I, I taught elementary school for a while as I was publishing my first work. Um, and, you know, because, you know, no one's going to graduate from college and go get hired to be a fiction writer. That's not a thing. Right. Um, also, I don't know anyone really wants to read what a recent college graduate thinks about life. <laughs> like, you know, give it a few years. Um, and, and no offense, but, you know, there's there's no such thing as a writing prodigy. It's, you know, it's probably for a reason. You, just, you need to, you know, there needs to be a little bit more time that passes. Um, so, you know, I would, I would say that, um, and I would... Um, I, I will say both of my children are um, tremendously creative to the point where I would be shocked if they don't have careers in the arts. Um, something would have had to go kind of awry, I think, for that to be the case. Um, 
And, um, you know, they, they see with me the amount of work that that entails, the hustle that's involved in that, but it's not about sitting in a beautiful cabin in the woods and writing <laughs> something pretty. You know, it's, um, it's, it's a job. And um, so I think they'd be, you know, in many ways well prepared for that life. They certainly have, they certainly have been warned by example. Let's say that. Um, and what, what's next for you? What do you want to do next? Another novel or more short stories or what's on your... Yeah, um, I think it will, it will be another novel. Um, I, meanwhile, I'm working on short stories that, you know, might appear, um, you know, one at a time in various magazines. Um, I'll never stop writing short stories. Um, but I have, I have like three different competing novel ideas kicking around. Um, and it's, it, this is a good position to be in, but I'm so excited about all three of them that I can't commit to one of them wow. and they can't really coexist in the same novel. So I think I know which one I'm going with, Sounds like um, but I'm really idea, I'm really idea driven. Um, you know, if I get an idea, that's a short story idea, that's what I'm going to write. And if I get, if I, if tomorrow I got an idea for a play, that's what I would write. Um, so, um, just knowing that my next most compelling ideas are for novels and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a novel next. Sounds like you need a, a three book deal. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, I know that, that would involve deadlines. I'm happy to pass on that. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Those are most of my questions. And, um, it was really great chatting with you. I loved your book, the great believers. It was amazing and so just powerful and, uh, feel like it really took me to another place and time and made me really attached to all your characters. So thank you for transporting me. Ah, uh, thanks. All right. I take, really appreciate it. No problem. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.